Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Professor Ruth Finnegan of the Open University about the new edition of her book, Communicating, in which she surveys the many different forms and modes of expression used in human communication. In this interview, we discuss the motivations for this broad perspective at personal, practical and theoretical levels, and we explore the rich and changing fabric of communication and its links to our senses, as well as its relation to technological developments. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Ruth Finnegan of the Open University to talk about her book, Communicating. Ruth, what originally inspired you to write this book? Well, the original book, because what's come out just now is a new edition. Well, I love writing it. In a way, it's about the world. It's about my life. It's about everything. Because it's about all the senses by which we appreciate the world around us. And that those are the resources which somehow miraculously we use to communicate, to interact with each other, because I see communicating very much as an active thing, a puzzle, a wonderful miracle puzzle. I, maybe I can kind of go back to the beginning, which is I've always been fascinated by language ever since I grew up in Northern Ireland, and then went to school in England. So I was already aware of something about learning a new language. I mean, even a different dialect, which is kind of a new language. I was aware that there was more than one way of doing things. And I was also aware that, and this was the other theme in my life, that language wasn't everything. (laughs) My father was a wonderful, well, he was one of these controlled, reserved Ulster men, Protestant men, with a great, quiet wit. And I always remember, well, many things about him, but he used to tell us about his famous, favorite limerick. Can can I tell you? Uh, And the whole point was the pauses and his facial expression as he said it, not just the words, but the weight of the feeling, the sound. I sat next the Duchess at tea. It was as I thought it would be. Her rumblings abdominal were something phenomenal. And everyone thought it was me. So this, in a way, has been the kind of division in my life, thinking that language, and this is what all the scholars would say, is everything, the typical human communication, the thing that makes us different from animals. And yet that language was not enough. So my recent book to be alternating between the two, because I wrote communicating, in which the message was language isn't everything, <laughs> even though it got shortlisted for a, a linguistics prize and gets listed under 
literary anthropology and linguistics and language. Well, to know what language isn't is really all the battle. So there was that book saying language is not everything. And then the next book I wrote was about quoting and how language, in a way, is everything. And then I did the second edition of Communicating, because the first apparently sold quite well to language scholars. And now the next book that's coming out, and I'm all delighted about it, is a Bloomsbury book on where is language, which again is about language, but is interacting again between the two. So, in a way, it was my life that made me write communicating. And I was a bit disappointed that the um, picture came out so poor in the first edition and much, much better in the second edition. And then, most recently, has been, nearly most recently, a new edition of my book, Oral Literature in Africa. Now, you must stop me if I'm going on too much, which I wrote first in 1970, and became a textbook all over Africa, but nobody could afford to buy it. I mean, it was black cover, heavy, hardback, Oxford University Press, no pictures. And then they did a new edition, which is free on the web, so everyone in Africa can read it. Thousands, 20,000 or so have already done so, and it's got pictures. And the pictures make the point I kept making in the book, but you can't really believe it until you see that oral literature, that is unwritten literature, that's been my, my big thing that I became famous for, is not a matter of tribal tradition, passive, inherited, but is active, aesthetic, individual, inspired. So that was yet another book about language. And I'll add just one other thing about what I found a defect in communicating. Well, both editions, really. Well, especially the first, which was, I think, that I did quite a good job in sorting out how people communicate face-to-face, that is, with all the kinesics and the suggestions and the proxemics, the spacing, the facial expressions, the sound, which is much more than just language, more than just cognitive, and even smell and touch, um, which is so close to sound at the edges. But what I didn't manage to do, I talked about communicating through space, quite well. Amazing how people have done that for thousands of years, so many ways, drum language, beacons, and so on. But communicating through time. But I felt that my quoting book did something about that. And then the new chapter, which I can talk about in a while if you'd like me to, in um, the new edition of Communicating. I think that's about it. There are no doubt lots of other hidden things going on I didn't know about. Indeed, I think that that covers an enormous amount of ground. Um, What I'd like to ask, I mean, first, as you say, a major theme of your book, Communicating, is that this the sheer sort of multifariousness of human communication is something that's widely underappreciated in a lot of research in the field. Um, Why do you think that is or has been? I think it's academics and education and the printed book 
I was trained in classical studies, Greek and Latin, and that is words on a page, you learn to translate them, you learn the grammar and the syntax and the commentaries down at the bottom of the page and the, the German, what the German scholars said. And you think that what language, what communication, what art is, is text in lines. Um, and children are taught that too. They're taught that they can't communicate until they can read. And that reading is just, well, they were very good in New Zealand primary education, getting children to look at the pictures as well when they're learning to read. And I thought to begin with that was cheating. And then they said, but there's so many clues. And they must look at all the clues and not just the words. And that's something I think that the scholars forget. And again, that I will bring in a lot into communicating. Pick up any book around you, dear sir, dear listener. Um, do you not look at the cover to see what kind of a book it is, the weight of it, the shape of the pages, the kind of paper, the layout, the spaces. The spaces are so important. Punctuation. All of those things give you a clue as to what the genre is, what the book's about. Do you ever read a book? even on your iPad, without thinking about all that, that is all part of the message. But we somehow are taught to obliterate all that. And of course, scholars are so powerful. Don't ask me why, but they, they are. They seem to tell us what exists and what doesn't exist. You know, it was in Africa that I learned well, I think I learned it in Ireland growing up, but without noticing. But I did fieldwork. I, I switched from classics, knowing text was a thing. And even in classics, I mean, the, the text was in big writing at the top, and the commentaries and all the little bits around the edge were not important. And we weren't expected to know about historical setting or meaning or literature or anything. The time that I did classics in Oxford in the 1960s, brilliant, brilliant though it was. Well, I did anthropology after what they call greats, that is, philosophy and history in the classical world. Perfect combination. And without realizing what I let myself in for, I found myself in, a, in a, an African village. And I was supposed to be working for the colonial office about why people move from the country to the town, which was thought to be a bad thing. But fortunately... Half of my grant, kind of by mistake, came from somewhere else. And anyway, you had to find out all the basic background for whichever you did. And so I started getting interested in the stories. After all, my background was in literature. And in, in, oh, my mother was a brilliant storyteller. Wow. I owe her so much. And she taught me not to write pompously. She read my B-lit thesis and said, oh, academic, and I knew what she meant. And they told me these wonderful stories among a people called the Limba, chosen because they were people the name, I could pronounce the name of the interview. And some of them I wrote down from dictation or memory, but most of them I used as one of the first portable tape recorders that uh, an anthropologist had taken, believe it or not. But it was way back in 1960, that. And they were so deep, so profound. They were about life 
from death and tragedy and what happens when a mother who is the one who never, never will let down their sons betrays her son to death and how he still buries her with love. So he has to kill her to preserve his own life. And I brought these stories back. I wrote them down because I thought, right, what I've got here is a story because I've written down in the text. I've done a translation when I get back and a, a, a word-for-word transcription. When I get back, I'll write a commentary and it'll be just like a classical edition. Um, and I put them in two, a three-volume thesis, which is a bit unprecedented, second two volumes, typed out by me with limber on one side, English on the other, all like a lured edition um, of a classical text. And I showed them to some of my friends. I said, oh, this wonderful. And I well remember one saying, he was a good classical scholar and did one of these Russian courses. Oh, yes, one of these African animal tales. And I said, but the world's about life. And then I realized, of course, and I'm, you'll all know exactly what I mean. People died nowadays, too. It was the performance, the multi-sensory performance. And my presence there and the presence of the audience and the singers and the fire and the flickering of the light that made it so wonderful and so moving. So I had to go to Africa to learn that, to, to learn what I already knew, which is the best kind of learning. So that all has built into my feeling about communication and oddly enough has helped to promote my whole career. I feel I've, I've never properly paid back to Kalimba. But I have just, and please note this, started to sponsor a child in the wonderful SOS Children's Charity, SOS Children's Charity, which is the biggest children's charity in the world, but nobody seems to have heard of it, who adopt children who've been orphaned in war or whatever, AIDS and so on, in children's villages where each has a mother. And it's worth looking up the web, SOS Children's Charity. And I feel that's going to be paying back just a little bit. Yes, and you will also, of course, speak very um, effectively, emotively about them. And, and uh, I think convey in your book quite a, quite a sense of that multi-sensory performance in as much as that's, in as much as that's possible within the, one, um, within the one medium. Yes, I um, think so. Were there other facets of your cultural experience that you feel have really informed your approach? I've been influenced by my growing up in two absolutely major ways, which oddly enough came together in my life over the last months. First, I was, as I said, born in Ulster, and that had the most amazing influence on me, just as a person, who I was, who I am. Because I, 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 I'm still Ruth Finnegan as a writer, though I'm with my lovely, lovely, wonderful husband um, as Murray. He is the grandson of the great Murray of the great Oxford English Dictionary. So I feel very well connected. Well, it was the language, the wit, the multisensory depth of growing up in Derry. Derry, the heart of the Troubles. And, you know, it was so amazing. I went back there and found myself again about a month ago and saw the peace bridge, the bridge for peace that goes like a wonderful neck of a goose, wild goose, 
across the river that used to divide, and now you can walk across in 10 minutes from one side to the other. So that had an enormous effect on me. And going off to Donegal for a while when the army, the navy, sorry, took over our house to fight, fight the Battle of the Atlantic from my parents' bedroom. And I learned a lot of my classics there. But the other thing was that I went to a Quaker school. It wasn't that my parents were Quakers, but they had good Quaker connections, and some of the family were Quaker. My father was a pacifist, very bravely, in the 1930s in Northern Ireland and all his life. And he and my mother were finally thrown out of Northern Ireland for their work for reconciliation. Ah. Um, but at this Quaker school, which was wonderful anyway, and I learned about music, about performance. I sang in the joint choir with the boys' school and met and fell in love with a boy at the age of 17 that I learned Greek grammar with, Martino. But we had to learn texts, good Quakers, neither Catholic nor Protestant, but right across the divide. And the texts we had to repeat every morning were usually from the Bible, but also could be from English literature more generally. And those have been with me all my life. It's a bit the way Muslims learn the Quran, not to read, though they can, many of them, but for the sonic echoes that come to them at different times when they meet them in their lives. Uh, and these texts have gone so deep in me. I didn't know I remembered them, but they bubbled up all the time in my book on quoting, and even more in my novel which is just full of sonic echoes. So I will never forget my Quaker background. I didn't become a Quaker, but it's always been very important to me. And they were much less um, kind of snobby or purist than you would think, puritanical. Um, Judy Dench was there, for example, just a year below me. And you know what a great wit she is. Philomena came out of that. So I will never forget that. And they're the grounding they gave me to do classical studies because Greek and Latin literature, I don't feel that much for learning Latin just as a way of life, but, ah, oh, they're literature. So those two things had amazing influence on my whole life. And I went back to my school not long ago. And again, that was a kind of resolution of my life. The language I learned there and the... the non-language I learned there. Do you feel that the focus on the way the way um, communication has been researched then is sort of stuck in disciplinary silos? People haven't really embraced the full sort of practical experience of, of communication and use that as a guide to what they should be studying? Yes, and I think publishers are a lot to blame for that because a lot of us come out of our disciplines as transdisciplinary, rather than interdisciplinary, which still begs the question. And publishers say, but what discipline is it so that we know what bookshelf we can sell it from? But I think we're very fortunate now, and I'm interested in the history of typography as part of communication, in the new publishing opportunities, um, not only the ones that are free on the web, but the ones that can in a way, go back on Gutenberg and bring in audio and video on the web 
Well, for a while, publishers were put to the discs, but they were very expensive and they were unwilling to do it. And actually, to be quite honest, I have a lot of books with discs in the back when I've never listened to the disc. But now you can actually just put in a www thing. And I've, I've done it for my book on oral literature in Africa, second edition, by putting in all my limber tapes. It's so brilliant. I mean, nowadays, what they did was they took these old, scrumpled up, narrow tapes, all broken, kept in an old shopping bag for from 1960 and 61 and digitized them all. And they're all on the web and they sound absolutely fine. And I can, to some extent, understand them. I think I could go back and understand them all. And I've deposited the original transcripts in the SOAS, School of Orient and African Studies Archives. I felt a bit vulnerable, but it means anyone can look at them. I was, that brings me to something I was going to ask you about later on, which was, um, because you discussed the way that the technological developments have influenced over history, the, the mix of channels that we use to communicate. Um, are you, to some extent, surprised by the um, extent to which there have been changes uh, since the first edition of your book was published in 2002? Yes, I suppose tremendously in two ways. One is in scholars' approach to things. There's been what's been called... Well, we used to hear about the linguistics revolution and, and, and various other things, the visual revolution. There's been a, a sensory revolution, which I was just in at the start of. I didn't cause it. I was just went, I've been very lucky always and somehow going with the flow of things at the beginning, like the ethnography of music on the ground. Um, and it has really boomed since then. The first edition of my book on oral literature in Africa was at the beginning of, near the beginning of the performance boom. But for some reason, I became very important in that, especially in America. I mean, I have an outsider, they're not competitor, and therefore could be kind of um, cherished. I'm not being cynical. The Americans have been wonderful. And some of their writings, like Dick Bowen particularly, just have inspired me so much. So I think there's been a change in the content and a greater interest in cross-disciplinary work, um, partly through cultural studies, which can be dreadful, the POMO stuff, but can also be very wide. And then I think there's also been, secondly, um, this change I mentioned in the technology of publishing and in the number of readers. I feel so lucky to have been at the Open University. My husband and I were both founder members of staff because the number of graduates now has oh tripled, multiplied since we first began. So so many more readers. Though it is often not appreciated how many non university scholars there are. Another thing I've written about. Yes indeed. Turning back then slightly to the uh the linguistic aspect, I mean, as you said in your in your own work you've discussed linguistic communication and communication more generally. Would it be fair to say that you think the study of, of linguistics per se is somewhat within communication is somewhat overrated or has attracted a disproportionate amount of attention? Uh, aren't I typical? Yes and no. That's what academics always say. First, no. Uh, I think it's not overrated because language, after all, is in one way central. And I think 
what I really like about recent linguists is what they call pragmatics, which is talking about how language is what we do. Any word we use is language. It's not contained in dictionaries and grammar books. It comes from, uh, but that's the secret that's, that's uh, revealed at the end of my new book, not yet out, so I mustn't give that away. Um, it is it is us. It is action. Language is action. That's the key in the pragmatics work, which is Dutch but international now. And in that in that sense, language is everything. It's what we do, not what we think. I, I would disagree with Chomsky in that. So I've rediscovered him again. Um, so language must be everything. In another way, linguistics has traditional linguistics has very much misled us in taking chopping out just one dimension of of language itself and making us focus on that. But I'm so glad to see that there is still a lot of people like that, just like there are still a lot of scholars in music who think music means the great composers or the scores or history, not music now. But I think now... Many people would see it more broadly, even if they put it that way, the scholars. Yes, that's definitely my impression. Yeah, um, you you survey in subsequent chapters of the book the various other uh, sensory domains through which we can communicate, and the other um, physical media and so on. Is there something that you feel is is especially neglected or underrated in terms of the amount of attention it commands as a as a particular field of study within communication? Yes, the one I began with, which was sound, audition, sonority. I, I nearly said, why did I not begin with touch, which must be the most basic. But, you know, sound and touch are ultimately the same thing. Think of somebody going past your window with their um, radio on. You can hear bang, 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 and you can feel it. Or you can say, ouch, when you hear a very, very high note. Again, you can feel it. So though I divide sound, and well, elephants communicate by thumping on the ground, and it tra- travels miles underneath, or whales. Um, so I begin with sound, which in a way is my favorite. I'm not very visual, but I am quite acoustic. And it's not just in language. It's always, that's the other thing about communicating. I begin in many cases from animal communication because there's so much there. Every day I read on the web about how we've just discovered that parakeets this or even that plants that communicate in this way. And everyone is so amazed. But I just, maybe not those examples, I just knew all that. Um, but we so often forget that we are animals. But I also think the sound isn't just the sound of words. If you think of a beautiful line of poetry, a series of poetry, and you listen to it, it's the silences, it's the, it's not rhyme, it's the echoing assonances. I've started writing poetry. It comes to me in dreams, actually, as I I may be saying in the new chapter of my book. And I'm just aware of how Poetry is repetition, like that, a repetition that's different each time, even though it's the same. And the wonderful echoes, sonic echoes within a poem, 
I've been through a phase of thinking a poem is the sound, and I still think that, but I've now realized that the intellectual content is also what makes a poem. And that twist, think of the lovely twist of the last line of Shakespeare's sonnets. There's a wonderful one about the black ink, but in black ink, my love may still shine bright, which I've used for the title of a novel, which again came to me in a dream. And I'm just waiting, waiting, hoping to hear from America that somebody wants to publish it. I would, um, I would like, if I may, to ask now about, well, in what follows about two sort of diametrically opposite goals <laughs> of, of the book. One, I will come back with uh, some, some detail, I hope, to the, the creative uh, aspects and the, 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 the new chapter. Um, one thing that struck me is that you argue against a purely mentalistic view of communication. Um, partly because it's reductionist and that the mental level isn't necessarily the appropriate one for analysing certain oh, you phenomena. Read the book. <laughs> I have, but the impression I have is that your, your critique actually goes rather deeper than that. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, that, if you don't mind, will bring me on to the new chapter, which is about the importance of dreams, of telepathy, though I prefer to call it a shared mind, because it's not just across t- space, it's across time or outside time and space, about return from dead, which is not actually well documented. You could sum it all up with new views of consciousness, and I think that takes us outside our normal views of communication, which is more about communication in this world. And I don't see these, these new views of consciousness as being something different. It's more like a kind of dimension. Like when I have a dream that turns into a novel or a poem, it's just there, sitting there, waiting for me. I just take it down to this dictation and don't know where it's going to end, except I know it's there. Um, half awake, half asleep, it's that borderline. It's as if it's a sort of curtain that's pulled back, or rather... It becomes thin, and I can see in wisps what's beyond it. But it's just a different dimension of living. And people, you know, from the Greeks onwards, and particularly in the Middle Ages, and surprisingly in the 19th century, which is a place that was so Victorian dogmatic, they were much more aware of it. It was the 20th century, which was secular and closed. It just shows up a new but very, very eternal and real, graspable aspect of reality. And I wanted to try to convey just a little bit of that in my chapter. It's going to become, I hope, another book edited by me for Bloomsbury, but I'm waiting every day to hear, which I'm calling Entrancement, Entrancement which is a series of wonderful art and essays, original essays by scholar friends of mine. And then later on, I hope to have one just by myself called Enchantment on the same lines. But it's interesting how physics has turned around on itself. It's not just Einstein and chaos theory and quantum theory and all that, but really they begin to think that consciousness is a kind of, has a kind of material existence as real as atoms, as real as the universe. And there are all these new things, every day something new coming out about 
Oh, teleportation, carrying things into distance. Oh, and do you know about swarm behavior? How if you have a whole series of robots and you tell, you program one to do something, the rest will all obey and do the same thing. Maybe it'll take time. Amazingly, reading modern physics is part of the answer. And all those topics sell really well on Amazon. That's true. I mean, I'm a little skeptical about the, so to speak, mystical dimension of that, but I may be misinterpreting you and seeing that what you're saying is as mystical so much as relating to, a, I feel like, a science, a, maybe a scientific or at least a, a, a domain that it could be approached by science, but is just beyond us at the current time. Is that is that how you see it? Yes, it definitely is. And I also, if I can add another historical thing, because I regard myself as a cultural historian as much as an anthropologist. I mean, well, they're the same thing, really. Um, I'm very interested in the history of publishing. And I think we've moved through various stages. I know it's, it's very simplified, to put it this way, and I've argued against it often, but um, fair enough, from when people were non-literate, or, or the majority of people were non-literate, didn't read, through scrolls and then codices and then books. And then it's often forgotten how important the... Re- we talk about reproducible print. The reproducible woodcut was equally important. I want to talk about that at a conference, even though I'm not very visual. But now I think we're moving into a phase of not only the electronic multisensory communication, but of publishing, communicating through space and time with the help of science. And I think we're reaching this new revolution, which of course, like all the others, can only be brought on by human action and recognition. And again, that's what that chapter is about, particularly there's a, a new chapter and then there's a new section in the conclusion, which really says that. I mean, look at, looking into the future, I mean, I, take, I tend to take a more, more mentalistic point of view and kind of see the process of communication as being one in which we could conceivably be looking at very much more direct communication, so to speak, from from mind to mind or from brain to brain. Yes, like to ants do. And if ants can do it, surely humans could. There's a sense in which in which we in which we do when we express, for example, I mean when we when we express ourselves verbally, I've had that sense that we're that we're um, communicating somewhat more directly or at least with a with maybe a degree more precision than than can be achieved by a lot of other means of communication yeah. that for example use artifacts. Yeah. Do you see this sort of uh the trend as being one towards bypassing the, the vicissitudes of sensory input altogether or, or do you feel that that's still not really the appropriate level of analysis and actually we need to be thinking about how the senses are going to be uh made more uh, integrated in our experience? I don't think we will ever give up the senses. In a way, this doesn't sound too religious. Translate the words as you like. It's God's gift to us as human earthly bodies. But I think it's supplementing them. Uh, people sometimes talk about the sixth sense, and I think that would be another way of looking at it. It actually amazes me that we seem to accept even the most skeptical people of us, that there can be communication from loved ones in heaven, somehow, somehow, and we accept that, maybe multisensory, maybe extrasensory, 
And we accept communication through twins, between twins. Nobody seems surprised about that at all. Um, one example I give, actually not twins, but like twins, is from my two small granddaughters, one of whom I think was three and the other was under one and couldn't yet speak. And when the younger one cried and wanted something, um, the older one would say, she wants. And she was always right. Her mother just would always ask her. I was there. I saw it. And I asked them, now they're older and wonderful dressage riders. Um, and I think they communicate that way with their horses mutually. I said to the older one, do you still talk to your sister like that without words? She said, no, I don't need to now because she can speak for herself. So I think we go on using our wonderful means of communication, linguistic, all the senses, not taste, that isn't a sense in my in my meaning of the word. Um, but I think we will become more and more aware of something that's already there, but we don't fully recognize. Yeah. Um, something that, that recurs uh, throughout the book, which I suppose is, is by way of a caveat about some of the existing claims and maybe some of the new claims as well, is that you express some skepticism about the kinds of meanings that are imposed by or identified by external analysts who maybe come to a system and say, well, no, this this artifact is, is used to communicate such and such. Yeah. Do you feel that there's a there's in some sense a, an overprojection of, of communication or the danger of that? Yes, and I think we're back with the academic teachers again. You know, what is real, what is real. It's not just about the meaning of communication, about it. What exists in the world is cognitive words, brains, and that's it. Full stop. Does this, does this concern you feel as a way, uh, if you like, a principled way of, of delimiting what is, what is real, of identifying what is actually being communicated? Do we, for example, need to go to the source and see what's, uh, what's intended? Yeah. What is the source? Where is language? Yes, <laughs> in short. So you, um, you you mentioned a return to Chomsky. I mean, do you agree with him to the extent of the idea of uh, of language being localized in the in the individual, or to the extent of Grice's idea of intentional communication? I used to be very critical of Chomsky. You know, mentalist, reductionist, supercilious, academic. So I, I, I like his political stances, but I've come around to thinking that language, to my surprise, goes against my idea of language is only in use, that language is somehow inherent in us. You're right, I haven't thought of it inherent in each individual. Yes, yes, I'm not giving away the, 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 um, the finale of my next book, which is, should be out early. 2015 with Bloomsbury. Um, I think it's, well, you can use what language you like to use. I mean, it's a metaphor, really. But I think language comes from God, from outside us, or from deep inside us, which is outside us. Um, and that it only got invented once. The whole group of generative anthropologists, they're called, and you should interview some of them, um, that say language is only invented once. And how could it have been? But how could it have been invented? It was already there. Think of all the wonderful words 
people couldn't have used evolution, survival of the fittest, to find all those words in my... It's just too divine, too miraculous. I know that sounds terribly mystical, but tell me a better theory. Well, I was, uh, what strikes me is that, the, to some extent, the criticism of universal grammar is uh, along the lines that it's just presumed to be given in that same way. Oh. So I wonder if there's a point of contact there. I've always been so against that idea. So it shows that even when you're 80, you can change your mind. And I love the comment, I've forgotten who it was now, who made it, that um, of course I change my mind because things change. Or there's a wonderful saying of, um, I contradict myself. Do I contradict myself? I do. I am a multitude. I was so lucky to do anthropology. Well, first classics, because that took me into another time, another civilization, which was so wonderful, the wonderful Greeks. Um, and then anthropology of all multicultural things. And not not a sort of thing called multiculture, but all these separate, wonderful cultures. And I learned a little bit about with Edmund Pritchard, who taught me. And his way of teaching me anthropology at Oxford wasn't to sit down and listen to an essay and tell me things, but say, oh, Ruth, come along to the pub. And unfortunately, I hated beer, but by good luck discovered that I liked cider, which actually was more potent than beer. Um, and then he would just say things like, well, you need to rethink your whole ideas about yourself and your life. He was a, a Roman Catholic convert, and you can imagine that was anathema to a Protestant Ulster girl. Um, but I learned so much from him and from his kind of acolyte, Godfilian heart. And he used to say, oh, you may think you're a rotten field worker. No, Ruth, you're just shy. And in the end, they will come halfway to meet you. But it's certainly, as for all anthropologists in their first field work, it was a revolution in my thinking. And it has been with me ever since. So every book I write is really about my field work. I would like to ask one more question, which, which relates to this um, the field work and your, and your cross-cultural experience. Um, I thought you said very interesting things about the, the balance to strike between being aware that other cultures and our own culture in other times might use different combinations of resources with which to communicate. Yes. Um, and at the same time, being aware that all cultures simultaneously use multiple resources, so we're not in a you know, purely verbal yeah. culture or very verbal time. What I wondered, do you feel there's been a tendency to romanticize depictions of communication in unfamiliar cultures? Oh, yes, and not just of communication, but of the culture as a whole. I found that so much when I went and lived in Fiji, because I was determined not to fall for this romantic, savage, you know, back-to-nature, palm trees, sunny beaches thing. But I did, because actually it's true, and the flowers as well. But if I can just make one more point about being an anthropologist, they always talk about participant observation. You have to participate fully to be there, just so that my photos, they're nothing like as good as my husband's technically. Uh, they're all black, you know, things like that. But that's how it was. I was in the middle of it. But at the same time, an observer. And it's really, really difficult to be both. But that's our life, isn't it? That's what a poet, that's what a novelist has to be. They're fully participating, emotionally overwhelmed by your emotion. 
but at the same time standing back observing, putting it into words and spaces. Emotion recollection recollected in tranquility, wasn't it, that Wordsworth said, which I always thought was so mushy, but actually I now see what he means. I suppose God yes, must be like that, participating fully in each one of us, but he has to keep outside the battle too. Our time is nearly up. So, I mean, going forward, you mentioned various books uh, and collections in, in states of, of preparation and, and readiness for, for publication, but you also talk a lot about the creative uh, aspects. And the, the, your, Is it fair to say you'll become in, increasingly engaged in um, uh, creative output in, the, in recent times and continuing in that direction? Yes, amazingly so, both academic and poetic and literary fiction. I mean, my new novel is, is Homeric, really. It's on the, the, the lovely old form called short fable, which is song, epic, narrative. And it just come to me. And I have, I'm, it's funny, I am, I think I was just saying I'm more creative now than ever before, participating, observing. The beauties of language, of poetry, of sound, and of nature, of the butterflies, like the great butterfly that came to visit me from my mother as she died. I know it was her. And can I, do you have time for me to tell you just one more story? Absolutely. Um, my best friend at school was called Sally, and she came and lived with us for a while in between school and university. She did Catholics too. And my father, I have such a picture of him sitting below his favorite Holbein photo, a portrait of Erasmus, who we both revere. It's now in my study, um, in his scarlet robe, and saying his favorite poem, which is a translation from the Greek. And the translation is even more beautiful and very accurate. They, it's about death, a friend dying. They told me Heraclitus. They told me you were dead. They brought me bitter news to hear and bitter tears to shed. I wept as I remembered how often you and I had tired the sun with talking and sent him down the sky. And now that you are dying, now that you are lying, my dear old carrying guest, a handful of dry ashes, long, long ago at rest, Still are those pleasant voices, those nightingales, that's what we said in Greek, those nightingales awake, but death he taketh all away, but them he cannot take. It's so beautiful. Um, well, I never could, I loved it, but I never could remember it all, though I remembered Sally listening to my father, until last summer. One night, suddenly, the whole thing was standing there in my mind. I knew it all the time, all of it. And three days later, the phone went, and it was Sally's son who said, sit down. And I said, Sally. He said, yes, she died three days ago. So I know she came to me with beautiful language, language, you see, on her way to heaven. And when they went to tell her husband, their father, he had died that night of a heart attack because she'd been in a dementia home. And so they waited for each other to enter the gates. Isn't that lovely? So I hope you can include that poem because it's so beautiful. We shall. And uh, look forward also to hearing very much more from your uh, uh, creative flowering in the uh, in the near future. Thank you. For now, let me say, Ruth Finnegan, thank you very much for your time. A pleasure. 
I've been talking to Ruth Finnegan about communicating. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.